Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul, coming to you live from the summer headquarters of Crazy Money in Cashers, North Carolina, where we're escaping the bugs and humidity and heat of our primary headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia, which all you criminals might want to note is under video surveillance and under the protection of armed guards with twitchy trigger fingers. So stay away from that place. My guest for this episode is our next in the series of marriage and divorce that we've been doing this summer. Uh, It's been interesting. It's been thought-provoking. Her name is Olivia Summerhill, and she is an expert who consults with wealthy women going through divorce. Now, as I explained, I heard about Olivia through a conference I was speaking at virtually in the past few months, and I thought, wow, consultants for wealthy women going through divorce. Who would have thought there'd be such a thing? But indeed, there is, and it makes sense. Having experienced divorce as the child of a wealthy family, Olivia understands the massive impact that a parent's divorce and their fighting about money can have on their children's lives. And today, Olivia provides financial consulting for ultra-high net worth women going through their own divorces. Her typical client has a household net worth of $100 million or more, so she provides advice on everything from stocks, bonds, art, aeroplanes and country club memberships, not to mention cosmetic surgery and private investigators. As importantly, as Olivia explains, she helps her clients clarify their values, financial priorities, and how to visualize their lives post-divorce. She's the host of the Divorce for Wealthy Women podcast. She's a certified financial planner and a certified divorce financial analyst. Also, who'd have thunk there'd be such a thing? But of course there is. And in this super fun and sometimes scary conversation, Olivia and I discuss prenuptial agreements, shame around money, the concept of fairness in a divorce, and a book that she loved and I absolutely did not. She spoke to me from Seattle where it was 5 a.m. That's the one that's in the morning. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Olivia Summerhill. Is it 5 a.m. where you are? So I... I get up at four. Like when you messaged me about the time, it's like, I, this is my, I'm, I'm awake <laughs> at four. I'm super energetic at four. So it doesn't matter really what time it is, <laughs> how early in the morning. Are you a coffee person? You know, I stopped drinking coffee about a year and a half ago because I thought, oh my God, it's in a habit that I'm doing every day. So that could be an uh-huh. addiction. Maybe I should get rid of it. So I did. Wow. So Olivia, you're, Job title on your website is Certified Financial Planner, Divorce mm-hmm. Specialist, and Money Coach who discreetly helps high net worth women in divorce with their financial questions. I saw this job description. I think we were both attending some online financial conference or something. And I saw your job description and I'm like, how interesting. Like, that's a thing. How did you get started in this space? I made up the title. So it is Divorce Financial Consulting is something that I got into because I was in wealth management private banking, wealth management for a decade. And clients would come to me, especially women, post-divorce. I didn't know them before, during divorce. And they would have all of this stuff that their lawyers would tell them to do. They never did. So they never actually got their wills updated, updated beneficiaries on financial accounts. They didn't know what to still do with the lump sum of assets that they had now post-divorce. So it just seemed like a huge opportunity to help women that had absolutely no help and guidance with the finances during divorce. Their lawyers didn't help them with a lot of the stuff like the tax implications of pulling out of the wrong accounts. That's all finance. 
that was the one thing is there's a huge need. I saw people coming to me post-divorce and no one else was helping them. So why wouldn't I get into helping during divorce so that the whole divorce can go smoother, especially with the finances. And then she set up for success post-divorce instead of coming to me in a flurry and frustration and overwhelm. Just to clarify. So if post-divorce, they've already made decisions like to liquidate LLCs or sell property or get out of certain equity positions that has tax implications. There's nothing you can do post-divorce, but if you're there at the table during the divorce saying, say yes to this, say no to that, they can make better decisions. Yes. Give them options, show them where the red flags are, where they're making mistakes. I'll look over tax returns and say that that's a really good idea, bad idea. Absolutely. Yeah. You've summarized it perfectly. Okay. And the second reason is I grew up in an ultra high net worth family and I saw the impact personally of my parents fighting and they did an atrocious job of trying to settle their finances and took years of their lives away, ruined their children's lives in a lot of ways. And so what I do is try to level the playing field for women in divorce, lower the emotions and not have people end up like my family did, which it just ruined the family. So I do it for more of the personal reasons than just that huge need post-divorce of women. So there's multiple reasons why I do what I do. How does it work logistically? Like they engage you the same way they engage a lawyer and do you work in concert with those attorneys and with their other financial planners or what's the arrangement there? Yep. It's all in the above. So I work with either their mediator, their litigator, or just someone that they've already hired as the, the legal system. So a lawyer, and we all can pair up and work really nicely together. I also can come in as her advocate just in the background of, okay, yep, this is what they're saying that you should do. Okay, I agree with that. Here's exactly what will happen implication-wise in five to 10 years financially if you do go that route. Here's what happens with the home. So let's actually get that luxury realtor involved or your husband or soon-to-be ex-partner is involved in seven businesses, let's have those valued. Let me get that right business valuator involved. Right. So I either bring in the right people <laughs> to protect her or I'm sitting at the table and we're sitting there talking about what's best for her. What's unique about the position of women in the divorce process that you help them with? The unique part in women. So what they're unique or my approach that's unique? Uh, both. Women are more in tune to the ones that I work with of sitting with their emotions and feeling it and expressing it and telling me how they're feeling. Cause I'm a psychology of financial planning specialist as well. And a money coach behavioral finance designations. So I bring in all of that emotion around finance and they're very much open to discussing the emotions and making sure that I'm involved with those emotions. Because if you have, let's just take, for example, if you have fear around the finances and you're about to get divorced and you feel like you might be sent to the streets that you're not going to have anything financially in the future, that fear needs to be addressed, right? That's an emotion. So I see women come to me and they're open about that and they're able to talk about it. Um, and so that's, that's one clear designation that I see with clients. Uh, for me, my approach is I consult. So I have no conflict. I used to manage assets, but I don't. So with clients, it's just, yeah, you should probably keep the seven houses or no, you really should get rid of all of that liquidate because you should put your money elsewhere, but I'm not going to manage it. So it's, it's really what's best for the client. 
So how long are the typical engagements if you're not going to keep them as clients, as financial planning clients after the, the process is completed? How long do you typically work with someone? If they are pre-divorce, contemplating divorce, questioning what they should do, um, that's usually, and they're about to go to the divorce route, six months to a year, depends. If I get in at that time period and I can get them to the right attorneys and the right collaborative professionals, people who aren't going to, as lawyers, fight and try to um, continue the divorce process yeah. to make money, then it's a lot shorter, right? It is. I mean, let's let's face it. I, I have a case right now. Client came to me. They're two and a half years into the divorce process. They've spent probably two, two million, years. maybe a little less. Yeah, two and a half years and little less than two million and just divorce attorney fees. And I can literally help them in the next month and a half finish it off because all it is is the finances and the emotions of both parties. And let's like maybe protect them and the kids of what they can do to better themselves and get through this divorce. We don't need to be in the divorce process for two and a half years, my friends. Like there's no reason. So it depends on where I come into the case. Yeah. So I know confidentiality is absolutely integral to your, who can spend two and a half million dollars on attorney's fees. What kind of household net worth are we talking about there? Well, my normal clientele is over a hundred million at this point. Um, I 80 to hundred right. plus, but honestly, I'm going to say you could have 30 to 50 million and you might be that couple who could spend upwards of 2 million on divorce attorney fees. So it really, I mean, I see there's a lot of divorce coaches and divorce attorneys that work with, um, let's just the mass American market. And even the people who can't afford to spend 200,000 on attorney fees are spending 200,000. That's their whole net worth. Ugh. So when I Ugh. say my numbers, it really doesn't matter their net worth because a lot of people are spending or they're putting debt aside to just go after their soon-to-be ex with divorce attorney fees, which again, it's all emotion. If we can address the emotion, we can address the scary topic of finance and put those two together, we can lower those fees and also get to the right attorneys that aren't there just to put fuel on fire. How do you help your clients visualize their lives post-divorce? I love that question. Thank you Thank for asking. You. The first session. <laughs> like oh uh, yeah i'm so great i'm so good uh the first <laughs> by yourself on the back this morning the first session every single session without fail that i do with a new client we are going to go over the values and that takes half of the session so it takes mm. 20 to 30 minutes and all we do is that game we go through 50 of the top biggest values that i've seen affect people in life in a positive or negative way mm -hmm. we narrow it down to the top five. And that can take a lot longer than 30 minutes, but we try to do it in 20 to 30 minutes because people say, oh, I can't get to the top five. I really care about philanthropy or I really care about community or ecology is one of them or happiness, health, whatever, education, all of that might be part of your value system. And you can have all 50 be them, but the top five are going to be the core values that we drive this divorce down that road with. So I might actually hold it and I tell my clients, I might hold this against you because you're saying family is your top five value. If you're saying that and six months down the road, we're still in this divorce process. Is that what's really best for your family is fighting over just the 48 watches that you have in your drawers that you guys have never worn, but now you want to fight over it. 
is that what's best for your children and your family, right? Don't you want to go on family vacations with your soon-to-be ex in five years and graduations? Yeah. So I hold it to them so they have to have that perspective of what's the value to them. Hey, everybody. We'll be right back with Olivia in just a moment. But I want to let you know that next week I'll be interviewing famous celebrity divorce attorney Laura Wasser, who has represented everyone from Angelina Jolie to Heidi Klum, Kim Kardashian, Kris Jenner, Johnny Depp, Ryan Reynolds, Christina Aguilera, and many, many more. Right now I'm reading her book, It Doesn't Have to Be That Way, How to Divorce Without Destroying Your Family or Bankrupting Yourself. And a lot of the lessons she is sharing mirrors a lot of what we're talking with Olivia about today. The fact that the less acrimony there is in a divorce, the more uh, harmonious and financially stable a relationship post-divorce will be with your ex-spouse. I'm learning a lot and thinking through a lot about a process I hope I never have to go through. If you want to ask Laura a question or if you want me to ask Laura a question on your behalf, please email me at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com or post it in the Crazy Money listeners group on Facebook. Again, that is paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I hope to hear from you. Back to Olivia. So I know without, you know, sharing any names or anything, of course, I've got friends who've been through this and I, I've been married once, 15 years. Hope I never have to use your services. I certainly hope my wife doesn't have to use your services, but I know a family that, you know, split up millions, probably tens of frequent flyer miles that they didn't split equitably. And I'm like, dude, come on. I mean, you mentioned 48 watches. I mean, what are some of the things that people aren't even thinking about that come up in these negotiations? Right now, I have a case that people don't remember their memberships. So, and, and this is, again, geared mm-hmm. towards my clientele. So memberships of is course. a privilege to have. But tennis and golf memberships are huge. Or sports, athletic, front row seats or box seats, whatever you may have. Right now, clients have the memberships. Exactly. Right now, I have clients who didn't even think, because again, this is not a lawyer's job to tell you all these little nuances. But financially, I like to point out, you need to call the clubs. Do you have to, if you're if you're now, let's say, divorced, do you have to go apply for a new membership? That's 80K just right there. Right. So during the divorce, let's have the conversation and get those answers from the clubs. And also, let's talk about your values again. Do you want to be a part of the tennis and club gyms, uh, any of these big circles that you've been a part of? Or is that social circle not a value of yours anymore? And do you want to go somewhere else for that athletic adventure? Uh, my wife and I do not have a prenup, but it's been understood that if we split up, I get the Costco executive membership. That's been very clear from the beginning. I'm the one who values it. It's fitting with my top five values, including frugality and community and in a, a very large warehouse. So this is just also incredible. You have a podcast called Divorce for Wealthy Women on which you talk about everything from private investigators, college for your kids, art, and even plastic surgery. These are topics that I wouldn't even anticipate. And when you say private investigators, I get nervous and I'm not even up to anything. How do you pick the topics you discuss on the podcast? It's what fascinates me. And then also what I see clients dealing with or not dealing with is probably a better way is what are they not dealing with? Let's get the right people on the podcast so that other people can listen and hopefully not make the same mistakes, hopefully get the right information and if they don't have to hire anyone because they listened to the podcast and they got the education they need, great. That's why it's there. 
Um, I want to go back. Can we go back mm-hmm. to your Costco membership for a moment? Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. Okay. <laughs> In financial psychology, I'm curious, frugality is important to you. What about Costco makes it really worth your while? And, and how do you save money? And, and what is it tying to your frugality? <laughs> oh, um, or we could talk about it some other time, but I'm curious. <laughs> no, I think so. So I've just recently, like in the past six months, we didn't go to Costco for like eight years. And then I can't remember what I needed to go buy, but I needed something, a large quantity of something. And I'm like, mm-hmm. why don't I just go to Costco? And I did. And now I'm fascinated by it just because I grew up in a large family. I'm one of six kids. Mm-hmm. And if my parents had had Costco, I know that my mom would have, she would have spent 90% of her time there bringing home, you know, 47 gallons of milk that we would have gone through in a week. But now I've only got two kids, completely not coincidentally. So I see these vast, you know, like 47 donuts for $3 and I'm fascinated by it. And I bring it home and I know we're not going to end up eating all of them. I don't know. I just think Costco is... I think it's just a fun experience, and my kids love to go to Costco. We went yesterday to get huge quantities of of stuff that we don't need, but it's just a fun place to go shop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm curious, too, what your earliest memory of money is. If you can think of that on the spot. We're going to put you on the spot here. Oh, my God. Olivia's turning the tables on me here. My <laughs> earliest memory of money. Well, I tell a joke. Okay, I tell this joke about this is how frugality, well, this is how my life's ambitions were burned into me. My father was a very frugal man who's been interviewed on, he, he's, he passed away a few years ago, but my most popular episode is my interview with my dad talking about what it was like to raise six children. And I have this memory when I was 12 of going to get my first cavity filled. And on the way into the dentist's office, my father said to me, don't get the Novocaine, it's $20. And so... As I, as I writhed in pain in the dentist chair and the acrid stench of pulverized tooth filled the air, I promised to myself someday I'm going to make some goddamn money because money literally relieves pain. Now, I don't know how much of that is true or how much of that I've constructed and retroactively, but I do believe that in my household that there was significant stress over money, even though my parents, my dad constructed this narrative of his own in the interview was that he didn't, he was a very depression era guy. And I do believe he had very limited wants. He was not interested in fancy clothes, fancy watches, fancy cars. Breathing room would have been helpful to him. And, and I think that that stress permeated or was the subtext of a lot that went on in our household. Fix me, Olivia. What's going on? <laughs> Why do you ask? Tell me about that. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> you don't need fixing. No one needs fixing. And, there's a lot behind it. Maybe we could do another episode about that. <laughs> it's curiosity too. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, I think this is really where the fascination comes from because mm-hmm. I, I was the kid who was going to be, uh, and I told everybody, I'm going to get all A's because I'm going to get into a good college. I'm going to get into a good college because I'm going to get a good job. I'm going to get a good job because I want to make a lot of money. And if I make a lot of money, then I won't have any worries and I'll be happy. Well, that all happened. And I still had the same psychological issues. And I'm just more conscious of them now and reading everything I can about money and having a hundred and this is a hundred episode 178 or something of the podcast and thinking of it and being mindful of it and understanding its role in the world and in my life helps me and hopefully the listeners of this podcast go, okay, it's important, but what's the real goal? What are we really trying to get to here? And, you know, especially in divorce and 
my wife and I have talked about this, but I can't even imagine the emotional twists and turns that we would go through if I lost 50% of all the things that I've worked for for all these years. It would be really, really difficult to deal with emotionally beyond the destruction of our family, right? So, so that's why I think this is so fascinating. I agree. I, I had my own uh, growing up because of what I saw with my parents. I got into finance so that no one could control me with finances. Right. I saved way too much in my 20s. And the only reason why I started my company is because I hired a career coach who literally kept pointing out over and over, you have so much in savings. You can do this. You can start a company. And I kept pushing back. No, I can't. I don't have enough assets for retirement. I need to be able to protect myself and save more and be independent. So I ended up getting therapy, a money coach, career coach, and a lot of other stuff so that Mm. I could set myself up and change my behaviors and patterns. So it's fascinating that you have done your own work and you're very conscious, just like myself, of past behaviors with money. So, and maybe they'll always be there because I'm very frugal too. Like there's a lot of stuff. Yeah. My, my kids aren't growing up in an ultra high net worth house, but it's, I mean, it's borderline. It's definitely high net worth. I wonder, you know, what values of money are they picking up in the air? And, you know, you haven't grown up in an ultra high net worth family. It's like, I don't expect rich kids to grow up and be frugal. You know, that sort of seems somewhat counterintuitive. Was it watching your parents divorce? Did that inform your frugality? And I also had a grandfather who was very frugal. He was the generational wealth earner mm. in all the international businesses. And so I saw him as a beautiful mentor of how to handle finances. Let's go on the kid topic, if we could, for a moment, because I see this. Yeah, and I think listeners, listeners will love this because I'm sure that most listeners have children and they're worried and have anxiety over maybe they'll be entitled or maybe they're going to think that this is how life always is. If I give them allowance, that's this much or the fancy car at 16, or should I have them do the first job and work even though they don't need to, or should they help pay for college? All those questions are completely valid. So it's okay that you're having those feelings of, of entitlement of your children and what to do. And I think that in divorce, especially, I see a lot of my clients asking me about what to do with the children and the financial aspect. And one parent might be doing more vacations now because they want to show their love that way and prove their love that way. I'm talking about exotic vacations with their private jet still. Um, And the other (laughs) parent is worried that she's going to literally not even be able to afford marshmallows camping. So we can go into a lot of that, but any listener is here thinking, I'm not sure what to do with my children with entitlement, whether you're getting divorced or not. It is completely, everyone is thinking it. So it's okay that you are too. And a book, a book that I love, if anyone wants a book recommendation, I don't know, is Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence. And I think it's Rachel Sherman who wrote it, but that's, I know that's the title. And it just goes into a lot of those feelings. Yeah, I've read that book. I have very strong opinions about that book. I think it's I think it's one of the most dangerous books about wealth ever written, and it is symptomatic of the errors people make in their thinking about wealth today. And the data that she presents is her analysis is so far outside of the scientific method in terms of coming to the conclusion that people feel terrible about wealth that it borders on on criminal, honestly. 
here's one interesting observation that I got out of this book. It's that if you have housekeepers in your house, maybe don't leave your tw- your receipt for your $1,200 Prada boots out <laughs> so your housekeeper sees it, just out of sensitivity to the inequality there. That book, you know, she talks about surveying, I don't know, hundreds of people or something about do they feel bad about wealth? Because the whole theory is people feel bad about being wealthy. And who does she survey? She sur- surveys people from like the Brooklyn Co-op, the Brooklyn Lesbian Association. It's like all her neighbors in New York. And then she ambushes them with questions about do you feel bad about wealth under the pretense of talking to them about the renovations of their own of their apartments. I don't want to discredit your recommendation. I just we've just stumbled across one of the landmines of of what I think is wrong with the conversation around wealth in this country. And I agree with you on a lot of those points. And that's why it's powerful to read it is because you're going to either take away something positive Mm. or you're going to learn something or you're going to see the negative or you're going to feel heard that, okay, I have some of those feelings or not. And so I think it's a great conversation starter. And at least it's a good book to read. If you've ever had anxiety over affluence, someone's going to take away something from it. I think she wants rich people to feel bad. Her whole premise is that I agree. she believes that wealthy people have done, by definition, have done something, uh, have either taken advantage of, the, of other people or have done something illegal to come to their wealth. And they should therefore be bad about it. And I think th- there's a lot of people in this world that want you to feel bad about your gender, about your race, about your financial accomplishment. Things about which we either have no control or should feel no guilt whatsoever. As I say about white guilt, I was raised Catholic. My guilt hard drive is full. I'm sorry. I'm not taking on anybody else's guilt. I'm going to live the best life I can live. And I've accomplished what I've accomplished. I could have accomplished more. I could have accomplished less. But I don't have to feel bad about where I live or what I've earned. And I think that she comes at it from a completely different angle. And that there's a whole segment of society that wants people to feel that way. You should not feel bad about your wealth. You should feel, you should feel grateful. You shouldn't feel bad about it. Anyway, so we can change the topic, but I see no, like no, 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 no. I want to keep people you, still have shame. There's still shame. There's underlying shame and guilt. Why? Why do they have that? I just don't know because there's so many different reasons. It's either the way you're brought up or it's society because we have all these different tribes and we come in different tribes. My, let's just say my clientele, their tribe is to be in the socialite aspects of life. And when you're kicked out of the tribe and divorced because mm-hmm. your $80,000 that you used to spend on your credit card monthly isn't going through because he's controlling your assets and you have no clue how to actually have the credit card work, you're kicked out of that tribe. Mm-hmm. So the shame and guilt of just not being in your tribe is one thing that might be coming up. Another is just the old... Money doesn't grow on trees is maybe what clients or maybe people listening here have heard from their parents growing up. So that guilt of, oh my God, I married into wealth and so I don't deserve this, or I have made myself successful and now I'm at a different tribe. Right. So I came from a tribe that everyone helps everyone. It's not individualistic. We help our neighbors. We um, bring home $1,000. It goes to everyone in our cousins. Like everyone gets that $1,000 growing up. Well, then if you get into the tribe of, oh, well, I'm now a successful CEO, or I am a writer and it paid off, and now I'm making a lot of money, or I'm an athlete, and all of a sudden I got all these scholarships, and now I just got a really beautiful draft with the NFL, 
and I'm making a lot of money, whatever it may be, now you're in a different tribe. Yep. So whatever tribe you come from, you're going to either homeostasis, you're going to want to get back to that to feel more comfortable, or you're going to feel guilt and shame. So a lot of my clients, 90% or more feel that guilt or shame. So this book, although I, I think she addresses it in a way of, yeah, she's wanting almost, she, she doesn't come from it. She's not understanding of it. It does show the anxieties that a lot of my clients have. And we need to address it because I agree, you do not need to feel bad for having wealth. We could talk about that too for a whole episode. I totally agree with you, but we need to address the shame and guilt underlying and not pretend it's not there and suppressing it. And then we can address it with our children better, right? And talk more to them about entitlement and whatnot because usually it's not entitlement. There's something deeper. So sometimes the source of money before a marriage, sometimes it comes mostly from the woman. Sometimes it comes mostly from the man or from one party or the other if there are same-sex marriages. How do you think about what's fair? There's things that are legal. There's things that our legal system says this is the way assets should be split up. And there's other things that say, well, what would be fair? How do you think about those two things? Oof. It's hard because everyone's going to have in that relationship different thought processes on what is fair. So it's a negotiation. It's like a business deal. So we need to come to what's fair as not my own thought process of what's fair as a professional, but literally understanding what's important to both of them and the value systems, and also 10, 20, 30 years down the road, what's important financially. Because what's fair today might be great, but one party might actually be more in a beneficial state if they continue doing what they're doing and not have what's fair right now and get something later. Because, for example, that's very messy how I just said that. For example, if someone owns a business and the other person was a stay-at-home spouse, mm -hmm. the one who owns the business most likely can continue to grow that business if they've been doing it for 10, 20 years and be fine if they've been making, let's say, a few million a year. They're going to continue to do that and be fine. So the fairness of the person who stayed at home most likely at the very beginning is going to need more of a lump sum or more of a financial helping to get on the foot and the, the equal footing to get that, let's say, extra degree to get into a career path that will get them financially able to support themselves. So their trajectory is a lot slower than the person who already owns a business who's already making millions. Sure. So to get them to an equal playing field, what's fair might not look fair to both parties. We have to negotiate and also understand both values, all of that stuff. So I don't know if I answered that right, but it's messy. It's never <laughs> going to be perfect. And I think that's, I think I that's actually, the... I do set ex. I think it's messy is probably the, <laughs> the, the right way to start and just say like, somebody's not going to be happy. Right. Or, or both of them aren't going to be happy. Right. Mm -hmm. And lowering emotions. Because I also understand that the person who created the business, that's their baby. Why would they ever want to give all of that up or even half of that up? So you have to come in at it in a very careful approach. And I personally think that sending like very litigious and very scary sounding letters in the mail with your lawyer probably won't make them feel good about the process. So having conversations before you start the process of divorce and the legal system to me, makes the most sense because um, it doesn't trigger people as much um, if you can talk about the money and talk about the fears and the emotions before you get into the divorce and finances. Okay, if either our younger listeners 
who might be in their 20s or 30s or even getting remarried for the first or second time in their 40s, 50s or older, or for the children of our listeners, of our high net worth listeners, what advice would you give them on the topic of prenuptial agreements? So I am a big believer in talking about your finances. Of course, I love talking about money. So duh. But I would say if you're in a newer relationship, if you're young, if you're older, it doesn't really matter. I don't care because we all do a pretty bad job of talking about finances. 95% of us, or even I think it's 97, research has shown has anxiety around money. Mm. So all of us in America are having a hard time talking about our even our own money issues. So us being able to talk with a new partner or someone we're about to get married to it for a second time, or we're in our 20s and we're in the very first relationship, all of these conversations, whatever age you're in, whatever stage of life you're in, just being able to just openly be vulnerable about your fears around money. That's, mm. that's the biggest advice I would say. And prenups, if you're about to get married, as far in advance, talking about the money is great. But even if you're not doing a prenup, because I believe in prenups, I think it's great to talk about. And there's a lot of stigma against it. There's a lot of taboo. It's a really good thing. We could talk about it more in another episode. But in the very beginning of just money conversations with a new relationship, being able to just be vulnerable and talk about your issues with money or your thoughts around money or your vulnerability around money and talking with each other, that's going to be a winning relationship. Because what? The top stress and why people get divorced the most is money. So if you cannot harbor resentment or emotions as you continue a relationship and get married, prenup or no prenup, you're going to have a much better success rate. So let's just talk about money. So on your second date, you have to divulge something to your date. You're like, I have terrible news. I'm very wealthy. <laughs> you know, okay, we can laugh about this and joke about it all we want, but I have friends who are getting married and they don't even know their significant other's debt ratio versus their income Oof. versus Oof. any of those things. That is so appalling to me. And I, I, that's a judgment. I just showed that yeah. I have a bias of yep. wanting to talk about money so that I need to rein in, but I'm acknowledging it. I'm human. You've got to talk about the money and yeah, we could joke about second dates, but you know, maybe the third, we'll go with the third. <laughs> that's a bias based on wisdom, I would say. So, well, Levy, this is fascinating stuff. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? So I have a very specific niche. So <laughs> the only people who might want to find out about my work is someone wanting a divorce or thinking of divorce. And that's just looking me up online. Olivia Summerhill, you'll find me. Or Divorce for Wealthy Women, my podcast is helpful. All right. So if you search for Olivia, be sure to clear your browser history after you do it. Olivia, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Such a pleasure. I'm grateful to Olivia for taking the time to talk to us this week. And even though I hope that we never need this, her services, I'm glad that she's out there doing the work she's doing. Having experienced divorce as a child and as an adult herself, she's really using life's adversities to try to serve her fellow human. And I think that's a, a very positive thing, especially since as she referred to, and as Laura Wasser is talking about in her book, as I'm reading it, the more mature and emotionally stable you can be going through divorce, the more you're preserving your strength, your dignity, and yes, your money, because you're not dragging yourself and your partner through very, very expensive proceedings that will end up 
helping no one and hurting everyone, including yourself and your children. So keep on doing the Lord's work, Olivia. Next week, we'll be talking to private investigator Nick Himenitis, who is a very interesting cat who provides services to both corporations and couples going through divorce for financial forensics. If you think you can hide your cryptocurrency in a Bahamian bank account, think again, sir or madam. Nick is out there, and he knows how to find what you're hiding. And yes, I will be doing the interview with Laura Wasser next week, but that's not going to come out until the week after or one week after that. So definitely stay tuned. Check us out next week. And in the meantime, stay healthy. Keep enjoying your summer. And in the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.